Um, as Jacob said, we are finishing the series on looking at voices in Matthew's Gospel. And tonight we're looking at the voice of the King, although I've renamed it the Call of the King. So I'm just going to pray before we start. Lord, I thank you that you are here tonight. I thank you that you are already at work in us. And Lord, I pray that you would speak now through me and through your word, Father, and that you would come and transform us by your power. Amen. So we're going to start off with some fun. Um, I don't know about you, but the main thing that I always take away from advertising, if I was going to go into advertising, is the main thing you want is repetition. If you want somebody to know your brand, if you want somebody to reach for your brand, then you need to be repeating again and again and again what your message is. Apparently, you, someone has to hear, have heard your message about seven to nine times before they'll begin to remember it. So I thought I'd see how effective they have been. And we're just going to see some things come up on the slide now. See if you can remember what they are advertising. Most important one, of course, is the last one. Who, who can get... Um, so the second one was the one I didn't know. Who can, who can get the second one? Yes, very good, Melanie. Guinness. It's going to come up, actually. I'm not going to tell you. Who, you can't say it, but who can get the last one? Put your hand up. Very good. JK, there's work to be done. Okay, let's see the next slide, and you'll see what they are for. With Jesus... There is one thing that he mentions more than anything else in his teaching in the Gospels, and that is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In this passage, it's the beginning of his public ministry, and he announces the coming of the kingdom of heaven. In verse 17, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he does three things, all to do with the kingdom of heaven. He's declared the kingdom of heaven. He then describes the kingdom of heaven as he goes about the synagogues, teaching and telling people the good news of the kingdom. And then he demonstrates what the kingdom looks like. He shows people glimpses of the kingdom in verses 23 and 24. He goes around healing people, freeing them from their sicknesses. Throughout his ministry... He teaches about the kingdom of God. He teaches the disciples in private. He teaches to the crowds about the kingdom of God. And in everything he does, he demonstrates what the kingdom of God looks like. And so tonight, I want to look at this idea of the kingdom of God. And I want to look at it within the context of the call of the king. The call of the king to us as individuals. And the call of the king to go out and proclaim his kingdom. So we're going to start in verses 17 to 22. So keep your Bibles out if you've got them. If you look at verses 18 to 22, it's the bit where Jesus calls the disciples. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's written in such a matter-of-fact way that it's almost easy to gloss over it, to accept that this is just a normal thing the disciples have done and move on. But actually, what happens in these four verses is astounding. You have these four men, these four fishermen, going about their day. They've got in their boats, they're preparing their nets. 
Their livelihood is fishing. That's how they put food on the table. That's probably the only trade they have ever known. You've got Zebedee, the father of James and John. They're fishing with him. They've probably learned their trade from their father. They've been doing this every day since they became adults. And suddenly, one day, here is this man, Jesus, telling them to drop their nets and to come and follow him to become fishers of men. This is not ordinary. There's absolutely no indication from Matthew that these disciples have ever met Jesus before. There's no indication from Matthew that the disciples had any kind of conversation with Jesus before they get up and follow him. There's no indication of them making conditions of ifs or buts. There's no indication that they ask for clarification of what do you actually mean by fishers of men. Jesus speaks 11 words. And that's all it takes for them to get up and leave everything they have known, all of their safety, all of their security, and get up and follow a man who they probably only just met. The summons of a king. It's easy to think that the disciples are not ordinary people. They're the disciples. They were incredibly ordinary people, the disciples. You only have to look through the gospel to realize how incredibly foolish they often were. They made mistake after mistake. They desert Jesus in his final hours. They were people just like us. If you look in verse 17, it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this word repent, it means to turn around. It means to change your whole life, to go in a completely different direction, to turn your whole life in the direction of the king, to follow the king. And that's basically what the disciples do here. They get up, they go in a complete opposite direction to the life they've been living and they follow Jesus. The message version puts verse 17 like this. It says, change your life. God's kingdom is here. This is massive. They're not just words on a page. This is Jesus saying, my kingdom is coming. My kingdom is here. This requires complete and utter change. Complete repentance. Do we live our lives like that as Christians? That's the challenge for us. Do we live a life sold out for the king? No conditions, no ifs, no buts. Do we only worship the king? Sometimes I think that the easiest time to repent in all the time that you're a Christian is when you have first, for the first time, encountered Jesus. Because it's often in that moment that repentance makes the most sense. You've just encountered Jesus for the first time. So it makes sense to turn your life around and to repent. But then you go a bit further down the road in your walk with Jesus in your Christian life. And it's easy to let bits of your heart, without you realizing it, go off and worship other things. We can get really good at doing Christianity at going to church, at going to connect, at leading Bible studies, at talking the talk. But actually, those secondary things, going to church, 
or going to connect group that initially were expressions of our love for Jesus become what's propping up our faith. We become careless with our relationship with Jesus. And our hearts get a bit cold. There are things that we worship that I think we don't realize we're worshiping. I don't know about you, but I've always been brought up to be very independent, to rely on my own strength, to rely on my own self. Independence is key in London to survive. And yet, actually, the gospel teaches the absolute opposite. It teaches dependence on Jesus. But do we actually worship our own independence? Or perhaps all your life you've been praised for being a really capable person, for your abilities, for your ability to be successful. You're not somebody who worships success or who longs to get to the top of the career ladder. But perhaps your net, like the fisherman, has become that thing that actually your ability, your own abilities to succeed, is the thing that you worship. To be asked to do something for Jesus that might make you look a bit foolish or that might fail, is something you'd find really hard to consider. There's lots of things that are almost default settings for us, that we worship without realizing that we are worshiping them. But anything that we are worshiping that is not the king means he doesn't have all of our hearts. Going back to the disciples, what is it that makes them get up and follow Jesus? If you look back at those verses, what is it that happens between Jesus uttering these words and the disciples going? Nothing. The only thing that has happened is that they have seen Jesus. They have encountered Jesus. It is purely and unquestioningly the very presence of Jesus that enables them to give their all. Verse 16, if you have a look down at it, it'll come up on the screen actually as well. It says this, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And you could reread it in this moment, in this encounter that they have with Jesus. The disciples who are living in darkness have seen a great light, that is Jesus. The disciples, they live in a spiritually dark land. And the fate that they face, that we all face without Jesus, is death. They live in the shadow of death. And suddenly, there's this clue of what they see when they see Jesus. They see this light. This light shining in the darkness of their lives. Offering them a life, a hope, a freedom, a contentment, a fulfillment, a peace. It goes on that they've never encountered before. And in that moment, it's a done deal. They get up and they go. There's no need for conditions. There's no need for questions. They get up and they go. Regardless of how long you have been a Christian for, the most important thing in a Christian walk is to spend time with Jesus. Not just at church on a Sunday, not just at Connect Group, but to live that daily rhythm of finding a time when you can seek the presence of Jesus. Even Jesus himself 
regularly went off to spend time with God in prayer. Even he needed to regularly encounter the presence of his father. And if we want to fully worship the king, if we want to be all out for him, then we have to start there. Now, I've been through many, many, many cycles of this, having tiny children with completely scuppered my normal routines. But now there's a bit more predictability with their sleep. I try and get up early before they get up so I can spend time with Jesus. But last time, I'd noticed it started slipping. I'd press snooze like one more time than I used to. And it was a sort of a quick read of the Bible, a quick fire of some arrow prayers. And then I felt challenged because I realized, actually, I am not really, really seeking the presence of Jesus in those moments. And so I've set my alarm earlier, and it's painful because I don't like waking up. But actually, that moment of sitting on a chair in the silence of our house and asking Jesus to come and be present with me is the best moment of my day because it's that moment that you encounter him that you encounter his light, and that you're reminded why you're doing all of this, what it's all for. I don't know if um, you ever get on your knees before Jesus. Um, I said it's always been something that I've thought of as kind of what people did in the old, olden days. You know how in the pews you'd have those kneelers to like make it less hard on your knees. But one of the challenges I realized recently was actually it's the most humbling thing to do in the presence of the Lord, to get on your knees. Because just that physical posture is saying, you are king, and I give you everything that I have. And it's amazing how, even just in that posture, the spirit is at work in you. Now, it would be easy to finish the talk there and to say, actually, that command to repent and to follow Jesus is quite enough to keep us going for the rest of our Christian walk But that isn't where the call ends. The call of the king is for our all. But the call of the king is for our all so that we can follow him. And following means he's taking us somewhere. The call of the king is to go and proclaim his kingdom on this earth. That is our call. What does it look like? Um, In my family, there seems to be a very strong gene in interior design. My mother, my brother, and I, we love it. Um, we've all done it in ver- to varying degrees as a job, and we will literally, we'll turn our hand to it at any possible point. So we've helped friends, we've helped families, but we all have exactly the same taste. It's almost like it's just in our DNA. And friends of mine have said that they can walk into a house without knowing that one of us has helped with the interior design. And they will know that Goddard's hands have been in there. That's my maiden name. And they'll say, it's like, you know, you've just seen the Goddard fingerprints all over that house. That's what God's intention is for us. If he is king of your life and his kingdom lives in you, then where your hands and feet go, where you speak, where you act, you will be bringing his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. We often make the mistake of hearing kingdom of heaven and hearing heaven and thinking, oh, the kingdom of heaven's up there. Oh, it's in that place where God lives, where when Jesus ascended, he went up there. And we form our theology around it. So we think, okay, so down here on earth, 
our role is sort of to tread water, to follow Jesus as much as we can, treading water, to tell people about Jesus and say, oh, if you tread water with me, one day you'll get to go to heaven as well. We make the kingdom of heaven all about location. That's not what it's about. The kingdom of heaven is about lordship. The kingdom of heaven is any place where Jesus is Lord. So when we are singing, when we were worshipping earlier, the kingdom of heaven is present because we're proclaiming him as Lord. Now you might say, well, if that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like then. We live in the time of the now and the not yet. So we know that through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has the victory. And therefore his kingdom reigns now. But Jesus is waiting. He hasn't come yet, come back in all his fullness. So we live in this time of seeing glimpses of the kingdom of heaven breaking through. But not always. Even in the gospel, when you look at it, sometimes in the, in the book of Acts, the, the disciples, the apostles, they pray for healing. And sometimes someone's healed and the kingdom breaks through. And sometimes someone isn't healed. The now and the not yet. It's a really tense thing to live with. But essentially what it is, it's a spiritual battleground. We know the victory is won, but the enemy is still trying to counter that claim. C.S. Lewis, he says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And so if we are citizens of heaven, we are called to engage in that battle and to claim his kingdom in every corner of the earth. The announcing of the kingdom of heaven in this passage was never intended to be isolated to just the work that Jesus did on this earth. As soon as Jesus announces the kingdom, what's the next thing he does? He goes and recruits the disciples. His intention was that from the outset, we would be involved in proclaiming his kingdom. What does that look like? It means praying for healing, for emotional healing, for mental illness to go, for physical healing. It means proclaiming Jesus' love in people's lives who are hurting. It means forgiving people when we feel wronged. The next bit that follows this is the Sermon on the Mount. That's what living kingdom life looks like if you want to read it later. The example we see in verses 23 and 24 of these healings, I don't know about you, but this is often where I stumble because I look at it and I think that's not what life looks like for me when I try and live kingdom living. I recently read um, a book, it's called No Neutral Ground, and it's by a friend of ours called Pete Portal. And he goes out, he's living in South Africa, and he's gone out to work in one of the toughest townships in Cape Town. And there are there's gangs, there's violence, there are regular shootings, there is drug addiction, everything you can imagine. And it's, it's awful, it's, there's so much suffering. But he's one of those people that I look at and I'm like, ah, you're, you're one of those missionaries that has gone um, to a really tough part of the world. And therefore, you get to see the kingdom breakthrough. You get to see all of these healings and all of these miracles. But my life back in the West, well, I didn't really get to see that because I guess I'm not on the front line 
and I make this mistake of making that division. But that's not true. And we know it's not true because actually one of the greatest, actually the greatest miracle that we can ever witness is someone coming to know the Lord. And we see that happening regularly here in Clapham, here at HTC. And the other reason why it's wrong is because if I'm a daughter of the king and therefore his kingdom lives in me, I can have just as much expectation to see him working through me and bringing his kingdom as somebody who's a missionary in a third world country. The great thing about this book is he addresses it. And he says, actually, we make such a mistake when we make that division and we say that the Christians over there are on the front line and we are not. Um, And I just wanted to read a bit from here because he puts it better than I can. So he says this. The notion of frontline ministry creates two problems. It disempowers and it dichotomizes. You will rarely hear those who are part of frontline ministry describing their lives that way. It's a term generally used by Western Christians who don't spend their lives, say, preaching on street corners or living among the poor. And it's a concept that automatically disempowers those who subscribe to it because it implies that they aren't doing the stuff or sold out for Jesus, or living a life of sacrifice. It says, is it any less frontline to sack supermarket shelves, or buy out bankrupt companies, or sell cars, or arrange flowers, or raise children at home, or make multi-million pound deals in a boardroom? And this is the key sentence. He says, as Bill Johnson helpfully puts it, there is no such thing as secular employment for the believer. Once we are born again, everything about us is redeemed for kingdom purposes. It is all spiritual. I.e., if there is a front line, we're all on it. And we can all expect to see his kingdom break through in our lives. So I took this challenge and I thought, okay, my life feels pretty set. I'm basically a taxi driver for my children. I take them to school, I bring them home from school, I take them to swimming, I take them to ballet. I mean, literally, that's most of my life. Occasionally, I work for HTC. Where in there is there room for kingdom breakthrough? So I thought, well, I'll look at the best example, Jesus. Jesus' ministry, actually, when you look closely, so much of it is made up of him going to individuals, encounters with individuals where the kingdom breaks through. And often he's on his way somewhere else when he gets interrupted by these individuals. And he has the eyes to see and he has the ears to hear. And he stops and he loves them in that moment. And so I thought to myself, okay, so there are individuals in my life, both ones I know and ones that I might come across. So I'm going to pray every day that God would give me the eyes to see and then the love to stop And there was a woman who I see quite regularly um, the other day, and she barely speaks any English. Um, But I'd noticed that she was was very visibly upset. And I had my children with me, and it was easy to think, "I'm, I'm not, I don't have time. And then this thing in my spirit nudged me. And so I went and sought her out, and I said, you don't look okay, what's wrong? And she could hardly say what was wrong. She, all she could explain to me was that she, she lives away from her family. She works in England, but her family live in the Ukraine, and she has an eight-year-old daughter and her husband. And she kept just saying, there's a problem with my family. 
and she was crying as she said it. But no matter how hard I tried, I even tried Google Translate, I couldn't get any further than that to know what was wrong or how I could help. And so I ended up saying to her, you know what, I don't know what the problem is, but I believe in Jesus, and I know he loves you, and I know he knows what the problem is. So I'm going to pray for you. And it was amazing. In that moment, her distraught face, it was like this, just this light, this peace just washed over her, and her whole disposition changed. I don't know what God did in that moment. And I later went and I grabbed my children, like, we're going to pray for her. I don't know what God did. But for me, in that moment, his kingdom broke through. And he did something through me that I couldn't have done on my own. It's a small example, but actually, to me, that's what life is about. It's expecting that just in who we are, because he is our king, because the kingdom lives in us, we will see breakthrough. Is your heart broken for the people that you work with? Is your heart broken for Clapham? Is it broken for the lost? Is it broken for the lonely or the people who live on the streets? The people who have nothing? When we are followers of the king, God longs to break our hearts for these things. He longs for us to find ourselves on our knees praying for these people. And then... He longs to see us become the answers to our own prayers as we go out and as we bring his kingdom. I want to just to finish with this quote that I read about the church and the light that we hold as the church. Leslie Newbigin, he says this, the church is that company which, going to the opposite way to the majority, facing not from life to death, but from death towards life, is given already the first glow of the light of a new day. It is that light that is the witness. Jesus is the light in the darkness, and if he's in us, then we have that light. And all we have to do is go with him and trust that that light will shine out of us. So I'm going to pray, and then Tim's going to come up. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your call is such a huge call. It's such an exciting call. It's such a privilege, Lord, to serve you. And Lord, I pray that tonight um, you would come, and Lord, that you would be speaking to us about what this call means for us. Amen.